At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Okay, so all those Super Bowl visitors have left, we think, and that means it's just us hashing out our own homegrown issues. You know, the ones we don't want all those strangers to know about. So come as you are, pull up a chair, and let's talk it out over a big old political breakfast. I'm Dennis O'Hare, happy to have you with us, and we've got our regulars along too. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, public affairs and government consultant, and former National Southern Regional Director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former Deputy Chief of Staff for former Governor Nathan Deal. Hey guys, welcome back. Good morning. Good to be here. Okay, let's start with what happens now after the Super Bowl. We didn't have an ice storm. We didn't have some of the really unpleasant things that happened in the Super Bowl the last time it was here. But what did we learn? Theron, I'll start with you. Well, we learned that when local, state, and federal government agencies come together, um, you can make sure that people have a safe and very fun experience in a major city like the city of Atlanta. You know, i got to get a big shout-out to Dan Corso. Uh, Dan Corso is the uh, president of the Atlanta Sports Council, but he also was the chairman of the Super Bowl committee. And also he was the chair of the Final Four and Mm -hmm. NCAA committees that we've had. So I want to give him a big shout-out because what that host committee was able to do, Dennis, is to come together, bring all the different agencies together, and work in concert to make sure that this is a great experience. So now Atlanta has proven that we can host big events like the Super Bowl. And I think that in the next decade, we will probably have another shot because the Mercedes-Benz Stadium was just looking phenomenal. And you see that in the South with the airport and the way that we have the hospitality industry here that was able to not only have hotel rooms, but they were able to maneuver people uh, through traffic. And MARTA was fully used and was fully operable, Mm -hmm. thank God. And I think it was a great experience. The bus drivers ended their sick out. None of the trains derailed near the airport, as had happened a couple of weeks before. But there's still the traffic issue. Well, when you had, I think, roughly about 150,000-plus people leave through Atlanta, Hartsfield, Jackson International Airport the Monday after the Super Bowl, it really, to me, crystallized how many additional people we had in the city that was either using a car and using MARTA. But, hey, I also think that the city was very smart to allow the scooter companies to basically— file for temporary permits, and because I saw a lot of folks downtown in the Midtown who was riding past people who were in traffic on these scooters. And so I think that was an alternative way and a very innovative way for city officials to let people get to the stadium. But how do you regulate them the rest of the time? That's one of the questions, not just for Atlanta. It's certainly come up just recently in Decatur as well. Brian? There are several things that we learned from this. One, these are extraordinarily expensive events to put on, and we've got to figure out a long-term funding mechanism 
to pay for events like the Super Bowl. This costs $40 million. And so we've got to hire tons of security today, much more so than in the past. And what we've been relying on is people like Corso, who, by the way, is also the son of Lee Corso of ESPN Mm -hmm. Game Day, to go out into the corporate community and raise tens of millions of dollars. That is not sustainable at the rate we are bringing in these world-class events. We're hoping to get the World Cup here. And so we really need, in, in these next 10 years, to invest heavily in our transit system. No more boondoggles like that that rail that goes from Centennial Park into nowhere. We need to put it in smart ways. We need to expand the it. The streetcar had to shut down because of pedestrian traffic. Surprise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no one rides it on the best of days. So uh, we need to start investing that money more smartly, and we need it to go out into the further reaches of the region. And we need a state-sanctioned funding mechanism to pay for these events. We know how much sales tax revenue these events bring in. We need to capture some of that to pay for some of these underlying costs. And we still have the question, which is kind of academic at this point because the stadium is there, of whether, even with big events, stadiums like this and projects like this ultimately pay for themselves in terms of benefits to the communities around them and benefits to the cities in which they are. Sports economist at KSU, J.C. Bradbury, says, no, they really don't. They do lots of good things, but if you make the economic argument for them in terms of what they bring to the community, probably not. The biggest difference for me, Dennis, was that I had an opportunity to go to Houston for the Super Bowl with the Atlanta Falcons and the New England Patriots. And I think one of the frustrating things at that time for me was that you had such a large commute because the stadium was not where a lot of people were staying. The unique thing about Atlanta that was so phenomenal is that, I mean, give a big shout-out to Jermaine Dupri, who Brian and I had an opportunity to be with at CNN. Who literally he retweeted me, which was a really big moment. Yeah, he retweeted you. So, you know, so <laughs> that's uh, so you know that's an embracement of the uh, white community. And, uh, <laughs> but, but Jermaine Dupri, I mean, Centennial Park was on display. I mean, you had 10,000, 15,000. I think even I was down 20. there Saturday night. Yeah, it I, was amazing. And, yes. think, and think about it, Dennis. If you were someone who was attending the Super Bowl, you could stay at the Ritz, the Westin, or even the AC Hotel, or even the Embassy Suites, and you didn't have to go anywhere because everything was centrally located. And I think that was the uniqueness about this Super Bowl experience. A lot of folks that I talked to from out of town, while we did have a traffic problem, a lot of these folks never left that sort of downtown corridor. And I think we had enough restaurants, we had enough events going on to entertain all of them. I was at a restaurant in Buckhead on Monday, and the owner came and saw us, and we just sort of joked around and said, how much money did you make this weekend? And he said, we were making $100,000 a day. So don't tell me it's not making an economic impact. It most certainly is. And we're paying... Every one of those hotel rooms was paid with people who were paying a hotel motel tax. They were paying the $5 transportation fee that goes to our roads. It's it's huge. And it's just great for big business and small business. And what you saw last week was a uh, 24-7 marketing campaign for Atlanta paid for by other people. Two people that don't get the credit that they deserve for what we just experienced with the Super Bowl. Of course, Arthur Blank gets a lot of credit for having a vision to want to build this sort of state-of-the-art world-class stadium. Uncle Artie. But, but, but the first person is, is former Speaker Mark Burkhalter. One of the things that he did as a state representative is that he led the effort to extend the hotel-motel tax. Brian just referenced that. Without the extension of the hotel-motel tax, you wouldn't have had the funding to build the stadium have this experience we just had. And then the last person is former Mayor Kasim Reed. It was under his leadership 
while he was mayor, who basically took a lot of heat from a lot of residents, a lot of people, church community members, who had this vision to build this world-class stadium to be able to host the Super Bowl. So I want to give those two individuals a big shout-out because they played a big, big part in having this experience that we just went through. I absolutely agree with that. Absolutely. Kasim Reed took a risk, and it paid off. And it was not a politically easy move. The legislature didn't want to touch it. If you'll recall, we were in the middle of the Great Recession. Teachers hadn't gotten raises in years, and people were like, how in the world are y'all going to spend a billion dollars on on a stadium to replace a perfectly good stadium? Let's remember what that was like at the time. It was courageous. We'll come back to Mayor Reed in just a few moments. Meanwhile, now that everybody's gone, let's talk about some of the things that uh, we haven't talked about in the legislature while all those outside folks were in town. Theron, I'll start with you. What do you expect to come up immediately after a very slow start in the legislature? You certainly hear about Medicaid expansion and what form that might take, but that's just one of several things. Where do you think the legislature is going to start off here? I think you're going to see a continuation of the conversation that really was robust at the end of last session around rural broadband. I think that's coming down the pike. The second, and now gambling's been coupled with that. This, the second thing is you're talking about destination resort casinos again, coupled with horse racing. Uh, Senator Brandon Beach mm-hmm. is pushing this pretty aggressively, and so and appara- he's from Metro Atlanta. What is he doing talking about the rural areas and? Horse racing, for well, instance. You know, Chairman Beach was a person who actually was very bold and courageous uh, two On years transit. ago around transit. And then two years ago also, he was one of the, the only senators who actually came out for Destination Casino uh, Gambling. I mean, he actually, you know, worked with Ron Stevenson from Savannah in the House to try to get that done. And so I think that you're going to see that move. And also, you just had a bill introduced about decriminalizing marijuana. And so this is something that we've seen in other states that Democrats have supported and some some legislatures have moved towards this. Um, but I think that those three things are, are going to be on the top of the agenda as this continue, continuing the, uh, legislative session. So let, me, let me follow up on why Brandon would be involved in that. I mean, one, it, it does help the equine industry within the Georgia agriculture industry throughout the state. But it would also allow for tracks that we currently don't have, and they could easily be in North Fulton, an area that he represents. Alpharetta has a built-in horse industry there already. You probably see one probably over by Augusta, too, which is close to Aiken's equine industry. Brian, let me ask you the economic question about, though. Some years ago, I spoke with Speaker David Ralston about this, and actually for several years, and he was very skeptical that tracks could actually make it on their own. Over in Alabama, they've already had that problem with tracks struggling to make it. So the question comes up, you might be helping the farms, but what about the tracks? Could they economically make a go of it? Has anything changed in that economic equation? You know, one thing that you've got to do to make this work is allow for paramutual betting at at the tracks. That that is the main revenue source there. But you might have to have casinos there too. In order the to... current legislation does not have racino uh, allowances in it. The la- last year's bill that came out did. This one doesn't have the racino where you have but can blackjack. Track make it without a casino attached. I'll have to leave that to people who know the industry better than I do about whether or not paramutual will do it. 
Keeneland in Lexington, Kentucky, which is an awesome destination. It is a great place to spend a day and watch horses. And, you know, if you're a poor guy like me, you know, doing $2 bets on the races, it's, it's a blast. And it has made it for many years. So it is possible regardless of what's happening in in Alabama. The other thing is that what we're trying to do is undergird this industry a bit because we see an opportunity, particularly in southwest Georgia where you have lots of these farms, to breed and supply horses in emerging markets such as the Arabian areas, Mm -hmm. uh, India, and China where horse racing is an emerging sport. And that'll be certainly one big issue. Let's come back to Medicaid expansion for a moment. Theron, Any word yet on whether the negotiations going on at the Capitol have produced what form of waiver, Medicaid expansion, whatever you want to call it, that the governor and the legislature can get behind? I had a good conversation this week with Minority Leader Bob Trammell, who's been very vocal privately and publicly about Medicaid expansion, but also the certificate of needs legislation that's going to come up this session. And that is the state requirement that a hospital or a new medical facility has to go to the state and show the need to go into that area it wants to go into. It's very complicated. Correct. And so, so he, they're tying the two together? Well, that may be a possibility, but I think what he's saying is that you can't have a conversation about one and not the other. And so that is a very, very strategic democratic approach, which is the difference between what we've seen in the past because what Leader Trammell understands is that he's got to give this new administration, Governor Kemp, and the leadership in the House, an opportunity to really explore this whole waiver process, right? And then also, it's got to be something that they can actually pass in both of their caucuses. And so I think that the pressure is on Governor Kemp and also members in the House and the Senate to really, really have a very civil and objective conversation about waiver programs. Now, I am hearing a lot of people are still considering How are you going to pay for it? We Mm -hmm. know that the governor has introduced a robust budget that includes a lot of different things, right? Yeah, we're talking about 27-plus billion dollars of spending. So where does the money come from for Medicaid expansion? Right. And so I think that there lies the opportunity for a lot of these sort of uh, freshmen and sort of sophomore and sort of new members in the House, which we know these are a very smart group of people, to come together to work with this governor's administration to try to figure out if they can get something going in one of the chambers, whether it's in the Senate or in the House. So how does, Brian, how does certificate of need and that whole contentious debate tie into Medicaid expansion? It's a trade-off. And uh, what Theron said is true, but it's not a democratic approach. It is something that I think many legislators are looking at. So what's the trade-off? Well, our hospitals have been asking for Medicaid expansion for years as we are losing some of our rural hospitals, many of which are county-owned, so taxpayers are on the hook there. Uh, When we lose those hospitals, our chances of economic development go down tremendously because no business is going to go to a place where their employees can't get health care. So it's a huge economic issue as well as a personal and family issue about keeping our hospitals open. So hospitals also want to keep the current certificate of need. Because yeah, that keeps them from running into competition from other facilities that might not have to provide all the services that the existing hospital does. And they also don't have to take non-paying customers mm-hmm. the way that hospitals do. So there's got to be some allowances that protect for that. I know that in other states, such as Texas, where they have reformed CON and allowed for these, quote-unquote, competition, they've driven hospitals out of business, and it's led to less choice for consumers. We need to walk carefully and slowly into this debate uh, and make sure that we don't 
hurt ourselves more than we gain. So the trade-off might be if the hospitals get Medicaid expansion, yes, then they would agree to some modification of the strict requirements for other facilities that might want to move into their territory. Is that it? Yes, that is it. That is the bottom line. And there's also the side issue of the Cancer Treatment Centers of America down in Noonan, which wants to change some regulatory laws that it agreed to when it came here in the last decade. It wants to be able to serve more Georgia paying patients. That's another side issue that's, that's part of this debate. But so I this say, is I, threading a lot of needles here. Yeah, and I think what you're seeing right now is people taking their negotiating positions and we're going to know a lot more in the coming weeks. Right now, we don't know what people are really thinking behind the scenes. We know what they're saying publicly, but everybody's negotiating at this juncture. Theron, the wild card here is we don't even know when it comes to the budget and you throw in Medicaid expansion and certificate of need and all of that, we don't know what the costs of the Hurricane Michael cleanup is, for instance. There's a whole lot of unknown going into these conversations and there's a lot of money at stake, and there's also the question of whether the state can afford everything. The fact that we're sitting here uh, talking about horse racing and destination casino gambling and Medicaid expansion, let me tell you this. When we first started this podcast a few years ago, Brian was nowhere to be found as far as like really talking about there any type of middle ground, particularly on Medicaid expansion. I mean, he did a wonderful job of carrying out Governor, former Governor Deal's messaging around Medicaid expansion. We also knew that Governor Deal was <laughs> it's not true. Was, was 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 opposed to destination casino gambling. That's right? true. That's um, true. He was. And, and so now, and then to then to now talk about horse racing, which you know we knew that you know a lot of lobbyists made a lot of money four or five years ago, basically going down this track. And so I think what it shows, Dennis, is Brian is exactly right. You have this new energy at the Capitol. It's something like I've never really seen before. You actually see Republicans and Democrats caucusing outside of their chambers. I mean, you'll actually see them trying to really work with one another. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this is going to be dictated on the continuation of the tone from the governor. Now, we do know, and I'm going to warn my Democratic friends, this governor has been a good governor so far. Um, you know, I've been saying very publicly, let's give him a chance. I don't want him to fail. I want him to succeed because I think if he succeeds, all Georgians succeed. But I think we need to prepare ourselves that this governor is going to start looking at some bills and some legislation that can kind of cover his base and cover his members in some of his base areas as well. So I just want us to, you know, get not too comfortable and knowing that we are totally going to get all these things done. But I do think that the leadership in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party at the Capitol are definitely showing a willingness to work together. When it comes to a Medicaid waiver, this is a chance for Brian Kemp to break away from the deal legacy and start to do his own thumbprint here for a bit. Theron is wrong, and Theron knows he's wrong. As soon as I left the governor's office in 2015, I immediately began work with the Georgia Healthcare Access Task Force searching for a waiver solution. It was one area where I was, one of the rare areas where I was on a different side of the fence than, than Governor Deal. If there was one thing that I wish Governor Deal had done differently, it would have been Medicaid expansion waiver approach, which would allow a more conservative approach, such as work requirements, time limits, drug testing, et cetera. I wish that he had done that. He didn't. And this is a chance for Brian to break away from that and to do something that is near 70 percent approval statewide now. One thing I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that if this were put on the floor of the House or Senate, the votes of the whole body are there for this. They're there. 
What I don't know yet is are the majority of the Republican caucuses there yet? And that's going to be the one rub. But Republicans are behind the eight ball here. We've got to give this lifeline of paying customers to our health care providers. That's what this provides. It will create 60 to 80,000 new health care industry jobs. It'll cover 500 to 700,000 more Georgians who will now go to their doctor and be able to pay. That is huge. Now let's move to President Trump, the State of the Union message, and the response from former House Democratic leader Stacey Abrams. Theron, does this response from Stacey Abrams and the fact that she avoided a major misstep mean that she is definitely now positioned to run for the Senate and that kind of clears out the rest of the Democratic field that might have been looking at it? Stacey Abrams did something that no one has been able to do really in the last five years that has given a response, and that is not get sort of annihilated by the mm-hmm. national press and talking about how boring, um, how you know, unengaging it was. I think that her response and really the scenery of the response to really have people behind, people behind her, her who yeah. looks like Georgia and, and looks mm-hmm. like America was phenomenal. Look, Dennis, we all know how good of an orator she is. No one ever questioned her ability to actually be able to articulate the response to what we heard from President Trump. The difference this time is that she really not only talked about her upbringing and her bio, which she'd spent almost $40 million in Georgia reminding the um, people in Georgia about her parents and her struggles coming up as a young woman from, from Mississippi. But I saw someone who I actually think that right now, not only is she being considered to run for U.S. Senate, and we all know that mm-hmm. there's also the speculations that she maybe sits the U.S. Senate race out and possibly runs again to have a rematch against Governor Kemp. Did she have to promise Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, though, that she would take on David Perdue in order to get that speaking slot? I think the conversation and what my friends on the Hill are telling me who work for Speaker Pelosi and work for Chuck Schumer, and if you look at what Leader Schumer has said publicly on different broadcasts, he has been all about Stacey, Stacey, Stacey. And I'm going to go a step further. I don't think that he was... Um, promoting her to just run for U.S. Senate in Georgia. I think it was an audition to say, hey, can this woman really possibly run for the president of the United States of America? Because Mm -hmm. she has as good of a chance now with this speech, millions and millions of people were tuned in to basically fully explore the possibility of running for president. But is there a promise there to take the first step in that process and take on David Perdue? And that would be the race that she runs and in the process clear out the Democratic primary field for 2020? I don't know. I wasn't in that meeting. I don't want to get into the process of trying to speculate um, things that I don't know that is true. But I will tell you this, Dennis. I think that even if she doesn't run for Senate or even if she runs for Senate, what she did the other night is that she cemented that Georgia is a battleground state. We are a battleground state that's going to have a lot of national attention. And I tell you this. If I am, if she doesn't run for president and she runs for U.S. Senate, having Stacey Abrams on the ballot in 2020 gives us an opportunity as Georgians to be in the mathematical equation towards the 270 electoral votes that are needed to elect a Democrat. We know that Florida right now is tough. North Carolina, I think, is almost gone. And Lord Jesus, look at what's happening in Virginia. I mean, we had to take this yeah. two weeks ago. I would have said, oh, Virginia definitely could swing back to the Democrats. But now Georgia, because of 
the response from Stacey Abrams is going to be Becomes in critical, the conversation on the road to 270. I don't think the cements our position as a battleground state. We were there already. I agree with Darren that we knew she's a good orator. I thought the setup with people standing behind her was awkward and sort of strange. I'll give her great credit. I thought, I thought it was odd. Um, I give her great credit. So, so Republicans, see, this is the difference. No, Republicans are not used to bringing people together and, and having a diverse gender and race of people behind them. They usually they were props. Know, they, they, it, they have people props. No, right no, there. it, it shows it shows the unity. No one in either party would ever use people as props. <laughs> no, Look I'm at the a, State I'm, of the Union message. I'm again it. I will give her props. I thought she did a much better job on her lipstick than the Kennedy guy did the year before. That was a huge improvement. Be careful. That Be was careful. a huge improvement over what the Kennedy guy did. Uh, hers wasn't nearly as glossy. Hey, and, and, this uh, is not the time to be talking about women and their lipstick. And don't dare talk I wasn't about talking, that. I wasn't talking about her about lipstick. Their hair. I was talking about the dude's lipstick. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's all. Continue, sir. <laughs> as I said uh, in the AJC uh, yesterday, I did a response on, on her speech. We've heard this speech before. We know she's a good orator. We know that she can deliver a message. We know she's a great writer. I imagine she wrote that speech herself. She didn't move anybody in Georgia. She may have deepened and inflamed this crush that the left wing in America has on her right now. And I think she could run for president because apparently Democrats in the country are unaware that she lost her race for governor. They have not figured out yet that Brian Kemp, the Republican, is actually living on West Pace's ferry, and she's not because she's being treated as if she's pulled off this ginormous upset. And that is one of the most extraordinary things about what she's accomplished is that she's lost but still treated like a winner. Does David Perdue have to worry, though, whether it's Stacey Abrams or I, anybody else? I encourage people to go to the piece that I wrote on georgiapoll.com, and it got started because someone uh, who was a blogger there took uh, quotes from me from this podcast. And I wanted to clarify some of those comments, but I am very much on the record saying that any Republican who is an incumbent or, or a challenger for an open seat for that matter, has a fight on his hands in a way that we have not had for the last 20 years. In the past, having an R behind your name gave you an innate advantage. That advantage has now been erased. I hope people will go look at that piece that I wrote. It does the math in very simple terms. So candidates matter to some degree. I've, I've, I've argued here that candidates matter less and less. David Perdue has a good profile, and he's got to rebuild that profile and rebrand himself in these next two years. Can he, though? Or is, with moderate voters, for instance, is his image already sealed because of his vociferous and consistent support of just about everything that President Trump has done. And, and you know, that's understandable. The I'm president needs allies in the Senate. I'm as interested as anybody to see what the brilliant political minds around David Perdue strategize on that issue. I don't know what direction they're going to go. Obviously, they have been attached at the hip with President Trump. That has been a strategy that has worked for them up to this point. I questioned it, but they've been proven right over and over again. So I trust their judgment on that. On a related subject, Theron, Attorney General Chris Carr revived an idea that had been floated a while back to put a bell tower on top of Stone Mountain, referencing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Let Freedom Ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Interesting timing here, of course, in light of everything that happened in Virginia and so forth. Is this something that he is floating as a trial balloon? Is this something that the rest of the state government's going to get behind? I watched and heard 
Attorney General Chris Carr make a very compelling speech at the MLK Day event uh, on the holiday at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. And his tone and approach to that speech was one that we saw with his new sort of uh, support of this bell tower on top of Stone Mountain. And it was a very um, inclusive speech. And he talked about him being a history buff. And he really has studied the mission of the beloved community that Dr. King basically lost his life for. And so I think by having the attorney general in a southern state who is a Republican come out and acknowledge that we need to move forward with this bell tower on the most popular attraction in Georgia, I think you're going to see tremendous amount of movement on this immediately. Right. And I noticed that the attorney general used language that we have heard from you on this podcast of history by addition and not subtraction when it comes to Stone Mountain. But is he speaking as Chris Carr or is he speaking for the Kemp administration? He's speaking for Chris Carr. He is elected independently. He is his own man in Mm -hmm. this constitutional structure here in Georgia. And I am so incredibly proud of my friend, Chris. He is doing something, one, that's right. And we need to be inclusive at this memorial. We need to quit acting like the only part of Georgia's history that matters are the four years from 1861 to 1865. Now, state law protects it as a Confederate memorial. I am supportive of that law. I want to see that base relief protected. But I also want to acknowledge that Stone Mountain today has changed its brand. It's no longer the place known for cross burnings on the top by racist and white hoods. It's known as a cultural destination for a multicultural audience. You go to the laser show or you go on a hike and you see people of every color from every ethnicity. It is a celebration of Georgia's multiculturalism there. And what Carr is doing, too, is political. He is signaling the path for Georgia Republicans on what we need to do moving forward in a state that will soon be majority-minority, how Republicans who care about conservative governance, about small government, about individual liberty and low taxes— how they maintain their majority in an era where people who traditionally vote Democrat become the majority. We've got to change tactics, and Chris Carr is teaching us how we should watch. But one of the person that I think also deserves some credit, who was quoted in an article that featured Chris Carr's uh, comments, is CEO Michael Thurman, who we know has talked a lot about He's Stone been Mountain. involved in the negotiations about this for a while. He was on the Stone Mountain board for Absolutely. a while. Absolutely. And, um, and so this is my only last little bit of advice to Republicans. In this state, we've heard a lot of words, but not followed up by deeds. I think that Attorney General Chris Carr definitely said the right thing. Let's see if we follow it up with their deeds to really work together to put this tower on top of Stone Mountain. Yeah, here's the thing, though, about the deeds <laughs> is... Nathan Deal put a statue of MLK on the Capitol grounds because he thought it was outrageous that there was no African-American representation on the most important hallowed grounds of our state government, particularly when the most famous African-American ever was born a mile away from the Capitol. It was a huge oversight, and Nathan Deal acted with deeds, not just words. Words versus deeds. Advice to Republicans. We did the deeds, and we got to keep doing them. And there is much more to come on The Political Breakfast. Stay right here.
Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. And we are back with the Political Breakfast. I'm Dennis O'Hare with Democratic strategist Theron Johnson and Republican strategist Brian Robinson. Theron, I want to shift to Atlanta for a moment because two things happened in the ongoing investigation into corruption at City Hall. Number one, Katrina Taylor Parks, longtime aide to former Mayor Reed, who had collapsed at her sentencing hearing in the middle of January, at the end of the month was finally sentenced to a year and nine months in prison. And number two, the U.S. attorney, B.J. Pack, who doesn't talk a lot about the investigation, hinted that while he's been getting some cooperation from Mayor Bottoms' administration, he would like to see a little more cooperation as he continues to investigate what went on in the past at City Hall. Yeah, it's very unfortunate that this cloud is sort of over uh, Mayor Bottoms and her administration. And she's had a really good couple of weeks with the Super Bowl. She was Johnny Isaacson's guest at the State of the Union, but now we're back to business here. I mean, she not only had a good Super Bowl, then it was an awesome Super mm-hmm. Bowl. I mean, you know, she went into a deep dive in, in planning for this event. I mean, everyone felt secure. Everybody was good. I mean, she worked with everyone. She went to the State of the Union with Johnny Isaacson to really continue her quest to show that she's willing to work with anybody who wants to move the city forward and the state forward. She also had a meeting with Governor Kemp. The unfortunate thing what happened with Katrina, uh, who's someone who I've worked with, who I know, is that, you know, she did something wrong and she pled guilty. And now she has to pay for her wrongdoing. And does and she have to give information? I don't listen, I don't know about that, Dennis. I don't want to know about that. But what I do know is, is that, listen, she did something wrong. She admitted to it. She pled guilty. And now she's serving her her uh, time. And hopefully she'll come out and, and try to regain herself and, and move forward. And I think, you know, with this comment from from BJ Pack, who's someone who we all know and uh, who's leading this investigation to to sort of say that and he, who doesn't say anything unless he means he has a purpose with it this yeah. is somebody who has been pretty quiet most well, just, of the time and I just want to remind our listeners is that you know Mayor Bottoms is a lawyer herself so if anyone that understands like former Mayor Cassine Reed they understand the legal process I think that she will continue to try to communicate with the federal uh, people and to make sure that they get all the information that they need. And I think that there are a lot of folks out there hoping that this uh, wraps up and that it's done thoroughly uh, and that once it's completed, uh, everyone in the city can move on from it. You know, there's no shortage of showboating U.S. attorneys around the country and historically. It's something that Chris Christie and Julie Giuliani, for example, used as launching pads for their political careers. You're not seeing B.J. Pack use this platform to self-aggrandize or to draw attention to himself or his leadership. He's handled this very responsibly, and I think that should give us a lot of faith in this judicial process. You know, when you have this ongoing investigation, I mean, you look at a New York Times article that was just written mm-hmm. about, I think it was three big cities. cities. Yeah. Big cities that they highlighted. And I, I immediately thought of a quote from former Governor Roy Barnes that if we're on the front page of the New York Times, it's not good. It's not, not good. good. No. So for those of us who actually work with these cities, and Brian works with these cities as well and counties, as an African-American male, when you see African-American leaders 
going to jail and being on investigation, uh, it's frustrating. And so it just reminds me, and I remind all of our listeners, is that it's no substitute for just having a great deal of integrity. And you got to make sure that you don't cut corners and you got to always make sure you do it the right way. And so uh, I do believe that the city will um, continue to thrive. And I think that the mayor will continue to cooperate and we'll get this investigation behind us. Quick final thoughts on this because it's a brand new thing as we speak anyway. BB&T, big bank based in Charlotte, is taking over SunTrust, big bank based here in Atlanta. Brian, is this a continuation of something that's really been going on for decades, Atlanta losing its position as a center of banking, although a lot goes on, once more it has shifted to Charlotte? You know, I wonder if the SunTrust folks here would quibble with your use of takeover and call it more of a merger since, you know, that the head SunTrust guy is going to be the, the president of this new... And it's going to have a new name and it's all of that. going to have a new that. name. But so the, I, the things that we, the we all want to know... The purchaser is BB&T. So we're, we're all interested to know, like, what's going to be the new name of SunTrust Park? I think that's going to be something we all mm. want to know. And I do hate to see us lose iconic Atlanta brands. And SunTrust has been here since before the turn of the last century by a different name. But and of what course, there's the Coca-Cola formula and all of that with SunTrust, too. And what you're seeing is what's happening across this industry and many other industries. What used to be regional powerhouses are having to merge with other regional powerhouses in order to compete nationally and have these efficiencies. In the meantime, we lose a lot of local support, a lot of local corporate citizenship when these things go national. I hate to see that happen, but I also understand it. I totally agree with Brian. I think that SunTrust has been a leader in this community for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, they have had countless amount of philanthropic efforts yep. across the city. I mean, if you go back to when it came to the MLK papers, when it's come to, you know, corporations stepping up, trying to bail out the state and counties and to really help with some corporate uh, public partnerships. I mean, SunTrust has always been at the forefront. And so I think that this is a unfortunate opportunity for the city as far as Atlanta brand. But I know a lot of folks over at BB&T, um, they've been here for a while, kind of not as robust and as present as SunTrust has been. But I think ultimately uh, we'll still see that philanthropic commitment from BB&T. I hope that's the case or whatever the new name is, because they are very cor important corporate partners. And I will say that Atlanta is on the winning end of this sometimes. Remember the old airlines, Northwest that mm -hmm. it was subsumed into our hometown airline Delta. So this happens, and but when it's your local company, it's one that you know you have been in the room with these executives when important decisions are being made for your community. You do hate to see these changes. And that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for former governor Nathan Deal. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, public affairs and government consultant, and former National Southern Regional Director for the Obama 2012 campaign. Thanks so much again, guys. Go Marta. <laughs> Have a great weekend, guys. And if you like this show, subscribe, please. And you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us. That is a great way to make sure other people can find us. We'll be back in your feed and in your head soon with more nourishing political conversation. Be sure to join us.
wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.